this is happening. The following production is part of the Weebeat podcast. Michelangelo from the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Tom Kane, this is the voice of Yoda on Star Wars. Hey, yo, it's Wobat, and a big yee-haw to you all. I used to be Luke Duke. Hi, my name is Oli Shoshan. I play Jedi Master Shakti. Hi, Butch Patrick here, Eddie Munster. Hi, this is Jim. Hi, this is Bill Farmer. You're listening to the Neverland Podcast. Welcome to Neverland. To Disney and beyond. And it will all happen again. And now your head lost boy, the Spider Pan. Walk on the eyes of East Pan. Jeremy! Take your pixie out of your pockets, Neverlanders, and sprinkle some pixie dust around. Grab that happiest thought, and the, well, of course, if you can grab a thought and sprinkle it around. Well, well, we already sprinkled it. Sprinkled it. Okay, y'all know what it is. I just wanted. I, I went Joe Biden there for a minute. You, you know the thing. Uh, but yeah, you sprinkle that pixie dust around. You think that happiest thought, and you fly away to Neverland with me. Hi, you know I've already been introduced. Uh, I'm just gonna run through a few quick things. I'm actually sitting here with Lost Boy Philip. Uh, come on, man. Uh, come on, man. We have a great interview coming up later with Curtis Finley about Chuck Jones and some stuff about Chuck Jones you might not know. Uh, Curtis Finley uh, helped publish a book on uh, some stuff with Chuck Jones, which. I learned a lot. Uh, that's coming up later, but before we get there, I do want to go and just mention the, the big elephant in the room is the, the news that maybe y'all saw this because Disneyland has not been allowed to reopen due to Governor Newsom in California and the standards he's trying to set on them. And of course, this has led to Disney laying off, uh, what was it, 28,000 employees from the parks. Uh, there was actually a protest group that showed up outside Disneyland uh, and uh, they had people going by to recall Governor Newsom. Let's open Disneyland up. They want it. They want Disneyland back. And really, for all the workers to be able to come back and get their jobs would be nice. Uh, so that's kind of the big news. But I, before we get into this interview with Curtis Finley, I do want to mention that I have heard from Jim Corcus. Uh, I, I was going to see if he wanted to be able to come on the show about this, but he just sent me a couple of emails. And he's got some descriptions. He's got two books coming out this month. One was supposed to have come out in March, but was delayed until now, thanks to the whole coronavirus. And the other one was due to come out here in July. But uh, The Vault of Walt, Volume 9, Halloween Edition. I'll read you the description. By the way, he, I, he sent me some links to where to find these books on Amazon. I'll make sure I put those in the show notes for you so you can check it out. But it says, Welcome, foolish mortals, to spooky Halloween stories about all things Disney. Step into the dead center of the book to learn about the ghosts, devils, witches, and other nightmare creatures that haunted the magical worlds of Disney to give us all moments of humor and horror. Chapters are devoted to Disney animation, Disney live-action movies, Disney theme parks, Disney witches, and much more, including the Ben Cooper Halloween costumes, the Halloween comic book stories of Carl Barks, Walt Disney's connection to Halloween, and Disney Halloween television specials, among many other things. Now, this goes on and on. I don't know if I have uh, room to uh, read this whole thing because I want to get it going. But he's got a lot of stuff. I think I'm going to copy and paste this over with the link. I'll probably put that in the show notes because there was a lot of things to say about that book. And I kind of want to get it. That sounds like fun. Uh, but he's also got a book about the Disney Cruise Line. And, he, of course, he's got a link for that that he shared with me, so I'm going to uh, share that later. But uh, he did say, since it's not a guidebook, the material is not time-sensitive, but it was felt it might garner more interest if Disney cruises were actually taking place. So this one also, I guess, was delayed. It was Well, this must be the one that was delayed. Maybe the other one he intended to release here in October because it seems time-appropriate. But let me read you a little bit of the description. Hidden Treasures of the Disney Cruise Line is what it says. Ahoy! Welcome aboard for a voyage through the creation of the Disney Cruise Line and some of the intriguing storytelling elements about its fleet of ships. This book is not a travel guide, nor is it designed to help get discounts. Pick a good cabin, select the best time of year to cruise, decide on a shore excursion, review the cuisine, or anything else related to things that a good travel agent can help you accomplish. This book is something very different and unprecedented. From stories of some of the cruises, Walt Disney and his family took over the decades to the Disney Imagine Engineers planned to create a floating Disney theme park that would sail to various ports around the world. The book is filled with history and storytelling that has rarely, if ever, been documented. Uh, so he's got a lot of description on that as well. I'll put that in the show notes for you. But yeah, so Jim Corcus has two new books. I'll put some links in the show notes. And now I'm going to toss it over to me back in the studio. 
to Disney and beyond. All right, Neverlanders, we are here with, let's say, I know you do you do some sort of cartoon work. I've seen your artwork, and I know you've written some books. But we're here with Curtis Finley, which if anybody happened to have uh, found, we did on the DAF radio for their Facebook page, and I think Jason has released it, but we did I have a... Yeah, I haven't even seen it yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I did a panel for the DAF Radio Facebook page with Jason Schlierman. You know, he used to have a podcast, DAF Radio, Disney Afternoon Forever. And I was there, and Curtis was there, and a bunch of us were there on this panel. And Curtis does a lot of interesting things. I thought, well, this could be a fun conversation. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, of course, working on uh, or doing something with uh, the comic strip for better or for worse. You're like a, like redrawing it or something? Um, yeah. Do you want to start there or do you want to go like, uh, um, there, there are so many avenues that we could, uh, <laughs> go in. <laughs> well, yeah, cause this is basically just for fun conversation and you've gotten to do a lot of stuff and even done, uh, apparently a lot of research on Chuck Jones and have a book out about Chuck Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's the deal is that I'm not, I, I do some cartooning just in my spare time. I'm not, that's not my main gig. Uh, I love just kind of doodling and such, as a lot of people do, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the my real interest is kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff, the people who create the cartoons. I love the history of it. Uh, and uh, I know you run a Disney podcast, so mm-hmm. like the, the, the whole golden age of animation, the history of that, the evolution of that craft and that medium is just so fascinating to me. I love it. I love all of those old um, Mickey Mouse shorts, Donald Duck and Goofy and all of that, the Silly Symphonies. Yeah, and, and the early feature films—they're just such such a an interesting era. And then the other stuff that comes out in that era as well, like the Looney Tune stuff, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, and you know Woody Woodpecker and Mighty Mouse and Betty Boop—all of that stuff, I just love it. Yeah, and it, it's just so fascinating to me. And at, there was one point, um, probably about a decade ago now, where I was like, you know what? I, I have a whole ton of these books in my library, biographies on people and Disney history and all of these art books and stuff. It's like, I want to do something to put my name on the map uh, and contribute to this history of animation, which, uh, you know, has, has been very, very well documented and covered over the years, especially the Disney stuff. <laughs> it's like... Mm-hmm. The, the more the, the as the more the years go by, the books that come out about Disney history are becoming more and more uh, specific in their focus because <laughs> you just can't. Do you, if you want to do a book on Disney history, you got to find that little tiny corner of something that no one has ever talked about before, <laughs> and it's like, what is that corner? Yeah, so I decided. Well, yeah. For some people, it seems the corner because uh, I found it very interesting. Uh, and as you know, diving into Disney fandom, uh, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know about my own hometown here around Kansas City, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, for a while, I was driving Uber and Lyft, and uh, people would ask me what I do, and I'd tell about the podcast, and I'd say, "Well, hey, you know, actually, around here in Kansas City, where's well, Walt Disney had his first studio," and everybody's like, "What?" So I actually find <laughs> there's a lot of things they can talk about because there's people who don't know. And uh, I've actually got a, a couple of panels we've done on the Laughagram Studios, and uh, we even did one. Uh, at uh, Planet Comic Con, where we talked about all the different cartoonists that interacted with Walt here in Kansas City, and then went on to do amazing things. I mean, you have the uh, uh, oh, not Harmonies, Harmon, um, Harmon and, and Ising, yeah, uh, came out of the the Laughagram Studios right here in Kansas City. I mean, a lot of great cartoonists and the great animators, you know, Up Iwerks met Walt Disney here in Kansas City, and then Up Iwerks yep. is probably one of the greatest animators of his era, if not of all yep. time. No, so. totally, absolutely. I would love to visit uh, your state to uh, mm-hmm. to just kind of roam around the history there. Maybe you could give me a tour. That that'd be awesome. <laughs> it's uh, so very very cool. Um, my my other big interest is classic comic strips. Yes, indeed. Uh, like the newspaper comic strips, the stuff that you'd see uh, way back before any of us were born, way back in like the 20s and 30s and 40s. Like I love that stuff. It's the same era as the stuff that Walt was doing in the cartoon world, Mm -hmm. except this is on the printed page. And uh, so when I was kind of noodling around online, I, I came across this reference to a comic strip, a newspaper comic strip that Chuck Jones did. 
Chuck Jones being the Looney Tunes animator um, who, who was responsible for creating characters like um, Roadrunner and Coyote mm-hmm. and Marvin the Martian and, and like revamping the way that Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck basically were done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I was like, "What a comics, a newspaper comic strip from Chuck Jones? How come Holy I've cow. never heard about this before?" I've read through both of Chuck Jones's autobiographies. He's got two, believe it or not, and uh, a bunch of other books on Chuck Jones. And I've never heard of this before. And so I started digging and finding out that this comic strip uh, it only lasted for six months. Hmm. And it uh, was only in a very, very small handful of newspapers. And it was at a time where Chuck Jones had his own studio, Tower 12, which he was uh, doing a work for hire stuff for MGM Animation, the new new line of uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons and such. Mm. And, and he must not have just had enough time to, to really focus on it because it didn't last very long. And so I was like... This is an interesting subject. This is one of those really, really specific subjects yeah. that I could put a book, uh, uh, you know, I could put a book together and see if I could find these old strips based on, um, you know, if I could find them in old newspapers or whatever and clean them up and restore them and put it all together. Wow. My only question was who owns the rights to this and how can I get them to play ball with a publisher? So I contacted uh, the Chuck Jones estate and talked to his daughter, Linda, and she she knew about the comic strip but didn't know who if they had the rights to it or if the syndicate had the rights to it. And so I contacted the syndicate, and they didn't know if they had the rights to it. Their records are a complete disaster. <laughs> and so like, it's just, it was like nobody knew what to do with this strip. It's just kind of fallen in between the cracks. And eventually the syndicate said, well, we have no use for it. Uh, we have no records of it. We don't have any, we, we don't have anything on file to do with this comic strip. So we are happy to say that the rights have reverted back to the estate. That's totally fine. So yeah. from there on in, I was able to talk with the estate and get a deal with them along with a great publisher called the Library of American Comics, who specialize in putting together hardcover like archival quality books that collect all of these old comic strips and they've done work with dick tracy little orphan annie flash gordon like a ton of the classics oh wow and i bet i've read I, some of these i yeah you might you may have and when i pitched the idea he's like i i I said to them, would you love to do a book about Chuck Jones? And they were like, uh, yeah, Chuck Jones, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the name value alone is uh, is worthwhile. Yeah. And like that's not even seeing any of the strips because we hadn't gotten to that part yet. Um, and so I got the opportunity to go down to Chuck Jones Enterprises. Whoa. Because they told me that they have a whole bunch of the original artwork in their archives. Oh, and like, man. this is this is great. They said, we don't know how much it's there, how much is in there, because they don't know anything about the strip. Yeah. And so they're like, if you can come on down, we'll show it to you. So I traveled down there. And let me tell you, this was like a, an incredible experience. Because if you can imagine, uh, Chuck Jones did so much work that they have a warehouse that they have full of his stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> like, they, uh, um, drawings and artwork and sketches and paintings and sculptures and, like, you name it, in, like, uh, cells and all of the stuff, like, all of these um, boxes full of the stuff when he had his own studio. And it's just all – a lot of it's not even organized. They, they have so much of it that they don't know what to do with it. And well, this was a decade ago, so I don't know, maybe they've organized it now, but they, <laughs> they didn't really at the time, but they did have one flat file full of all of this Chuck Jones comic strip art. The comic strip was called Crawford and it was about a little boy, sort of like Ralph Phillips. If you know the Ralph Phillips cartoons from Warner, from the Looney Tunes era, uh, he, he did one, mm. um, a, he did two cartoons with this character, but a little boy who had an overactive imagination. Yeah. And like he'd be sitting in school and his his mind would wander and it would take him through these scenes of him like flying a spaceship or, mm-hmm. or he was Napoleon or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So this character 
Those it was very similar. Absolutely. Um, this, this character was very similar to Ralph Phillips in that he kind of had to, he was a little bit more intellectual. He had an imagination and such. And uh, when I got to see these comic strips, um, like the and these these the artwork was huge. He drew on this this massive, you know, poster board or Bristol board or whatever it is, and he, you know shrunk it down to the newspaper size. And uh, and I started going through it. I I cataloged all of the strips that he had that they had in their archives, and the Sunday pages were massive. And I found out that they probably had about. 90% of the, of the six months strip in their wow. as original art, which is fantastic. Yeah. And so that made my job easier. And I got some other artwork from uh, Jerry Beck, who is a prominent animation historian. He had uh, clipped the Sunday pages from the newspaper when he saw it way back in the seventies when it, when it ran. Wow. Uh, and so I got some from him and then had to kind of, you know, find newspapers or whatever to try and make up the rest of it. Uh, we ended up uh, getting some syndicate proof sheets as well, so we were able to get some of the reproduction from there. So, when you if you see the book, and uh, I, I have a copy of it here that you can see on our video call here, mm-hmm. uh, I've reproduced. We reproduced the work from the original art, so you can see oh, Chuck neat. Jones's blue line underneath, like all of his pencil work. Yeah. Where, things are where his whiteout is we've we've done that so you can you get a really good example of chuck jones uh not his polished stuff like you can see the all of the underwork that happens and i've included a lot of sketches of of the comic strips that he did and um because we are able to take it from different sources we, we have uh we have reproduced some of the sundays the color sheets the color uh the color guides oh cool and some of its original artwork, some of it's scanned from the newspapers. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, but it's a really, really neat look at just the way Chuck Jones attacked his artwork. Yeah. And he definitely he had, a had a unique style that was very oh, yeah. much all his own that you could see. Even in the Grinch, I mean, it, it's it's like Dr. Seuss looking, but had that Chuck, Cho- uh, Chuck, Cho- uh, Chuck <laughs> Jones kind of style and feel. Because even the way he would draw Tom and Jerry that he would have his animators, when he was directing Tom and Jerry, you could tell they just looked different. They were unique. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like he has signature poses. The mm-hmm. way he constructs his faces are is very, very specific. The the kinds of gestures that they make and everything. And you can see that come through the comic strip, the Crawford comic strip as well. Mm. Uh, and that's really, really cool. So the that's we are able to reprint a bunch of that comic strip, most of it. I think we were missing only two strips out of the six months that we just couldn't find. Oh. And that's a that's probably half of the book the other half i managed to find a a storyboard a complete storyboard for a pitch for a a crawford um cartoon an animated short that he was going to do and so we were able to reprint the entire storyboard it's like you know 50 pages of of storyboards uh of this really really awesome comic strip or sorry, awesome animated short that never was made. Oh my goodness! And so that's really really cool. And yeah. when I found those, because they were tucked in a box, let me tell you, when I was at the archive, well, pardon me. <clears throat> uh, when I was at the archive, I couldn't help. I was like, I gotta look in some of these other boxes. I can't just <laughs> look at just Crawford stuff. Right. I, I'm here. I gotta see this. So I'm looking through these other boxes, and I'm finding like you know all of this stuff from the old Looney Tunes shorts. Uh, model wow. sheets and animation drawings and and um, and just really really interesting stuff and then uh, open up a box and oh no Linda actually says I have this other box that's labeled Crawford but I don't know what it is she hands it to me and that's where I found these storyboards mm. and I'm digging through these papers and it's like there's notes from Chuck Jones random sketches and drawings and I realize that this character actually has a really long history before the comic strip dating back to when he was still working with Warner brothers. He wanted to make, um, the Ralph Phillips character into a TV show. The pilot was made. It was called the adventures of the Roadrunner, And many people probably have seen it. It's, it's online. It's in the Looney Tunes DVD sets and such, but it was supposed to be 
um, based on Crawford and a bunch of the neighborhood kids. And hmm. Crawford, Crawford was one of those neighborhood kids. And then Chuck Jones started moonlighting for MGM, working on a, an, um, a feature film called Gay Paris, starring French cats. And when Warner Brothers found out that he was moonlighting, because he apparently had an exclusive contract, they hmm. were furious at him, and they fired him. Oh. And so then he moved over to do more work with MGM, started up his own studio. And he tried to pitch to MGM a number of times different shows that featured this Crawford character. And so in my book, I've got a huge history of, of Chuck Jones and his career after Warner Brothers. All of his work that he did with his own studio, Tower 12, and uh, and doing work with MGM, his Phantom Tollbooth movie, working with Dr. Seuss on the Grinch, all of that stuff, and all of the stuff that he did for this Crawford TV series that never made it to to fruition. Oh, um, goodness, I, I have a ton of artwork. Wow, and and productions, just concept work that he did for this show that that never came to light, and we reprinted a ton of it. In this book, so if you are a fan of Chuck Jones's work, and especially just like stuff that you've never seen before, yeah, this is stuff that you will never see in Warner Brothers books. You'll never see it in in MGM books because it's it doesn't relate. It's totally an unknown side of Chuck Jones's career, and it was totally fun playing detective and piecing it all together based on the notes that I found and stuff and and. Um, I worked a lot with his wife, Marion, because she was working for Tower 12 at the time. That's when that's where they met. And then they got married after Chuck Jones's first wife passed away. And so she had a lot of information just about that era and how the studio worked and and who was there and stuff. So I put a lot of that into the book as well. And both her, Marion and uh, his daughter, Linda, were very appreciative of 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 my detective work of uncovering this kind of part of their their father's and her husband's path uh, past that yeah. they just didn't know about and so it's it's there it's this is my mark in the animation historian world <laughs> and i'm very proud of it it's a lot of fun uh and the book i think this was about eight years ago now that the book was published so it's getting kind of hard to find oh so no if people if people want to find it you gotta kind of track it down quickly before it goes completely out of print. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and they, that's they need to print more of it, or more people need to know that this <laughs> this is like part of Seth Jones has been like lost to history. Holy cow! Yeah, I'm actually and, about to go do a quick search for it now. <laughs> yeah, you should do you should do that. And um, the, yeah, the reason why it's important is because through Chuck Jones's two biographies, he spends majority of his time talking about his early life, which is important, and about his work with Warner Brothers. And he spends very little time talking about his time after Warner Brothers with Tower 12 and such. So this is sort of the definitive book on Chuck Jones post Warner Brothers. Um, All of the people who do books on Chuck Jones biographies or otherwise, they don't spend adequate time in this era of his life. Uh, they'll they'll maybe say, oh yeah, and then after Warner Brothers, he worked on Tom and Jerry and did the Grinch cartoon and did some other stuff. The end. But mm. there was a lot of stuff that was going on there. Yeah, we, I, I have found up. like uh, Westfield Comics and Cartoon Brew actually have some images from the Crawford strips. Yep, yep, yep. Those people uh, were helpful when we launched the book in helping promote it and such. And uh, um, yeah, if you can find. Some of the, the – there's not very many examples online, um, but it's it's there in this book, collected almost in its entirety for those of you who want to learn more about Chuck Jones. And what was the name of the book again? The, the book is called Chuck Jones, The Dream That Never Was. It's not called Crawford. It's called The Dream That Never Was because the the scope of the book expanded beyond the comic strip. I do see a hardcover, only one left in stock on oh. Amazon. <laughs> there you go. There is six, although this does say six used from $20 and three new from $40.98. Yeah, that, those are good deals. The cover price on this book is, I think, around 50 bucks. 
Yeah, I think that hardcover that they mentioned is probably, you know, direct from publisher through Amazon. Yeah. But it is possible to get a used one, and that seems to be your, your best option. <laughs> you're going to want to try and track it down if you're interested because it, yeah. was, it didn't have a huge print run just because it's such a small, narrow market. So we didn't want to have like hundreds of copies sitting in warehouses for years to come. Uh, so it's, it'll be collectible in no time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that goodness. we'll be re- making a second printing of it, that's for sure. But that's... that's- kind of started my path on doing work with this publisher, Library of American Comics. And a few years later, I was able to attend a convention that had uh, Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse, the cartoonist creator of that comic strip. And uh, she, this was in Vancouver. That's where I live in Vancouver, Canada. And and she, yep, that's right. And she is Canadian. (laughs) And she actually had just moved to Vancouver. And uh, she's she spent most of her career out in Ontario, but uh, she wanted to come back to Vancouver. That's where some of her family is. And so she was doing a convention here. And I said, I would love to reprint your comic strip. I can see that you're the syndicate's publisher, the one who, who works with her, who uh, puts her strip in the newspapers, hasn't really done anything with her strip in, in terms of the books. They had a series that they they canceled, and it's been a couple of years since they've done anything. Would you, Lynn, be interested in working with me to reprint your entire comic strip uh, with this other publisher that really cares about comic strips? And she said she'd be interested, and I pitched it to my publisher, and he said, uh, heck yeah, let's do that. And so that's what we're in the middle of right now. Nice. I, I'm working as the editor of that series alongside uh, the, the publisher who is also editing it with me. And I'm not redrawing it. Okay. I'm I'm recoloring it Ooh. because the the files that the that Lynn Johnston's company has, um, they didn't have any of the the pre digital files except for the black line. They had been because they've what happened after she retired the strip is they started rerunning the strip in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And I, I thought there was something about they were kind of trying to rework or straighten to fix the drawings up or something. She did a lot of work yeah. inserting some new new gags and mm-hmm. fixing continuity stuff or fixing up the strips that she didn't like a whole lot. But when I pitched it to her, I said, we're, we want to preserve history. So I don't want any of that new stuff. I, I want to present this strip exactly how readers experienced it when they first – when it first was published in through the 80s and 90s and 2000s and that means uh as it was some like some of the controversial things like spanking or smoking or you know that kind of stuff that she's edited out of the strip just to be more current with today's society and um, i want to put it all back and present it in its historical context yeah. and and so she has all the black lines because they needed that for the newspapers, but they recolored it uh, digitally because they didn't have the the old files because it was all done in a completely different process back then. And I said, and it's recolored differently uh, using a lot of mo- modern shading and techniques, mm. and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I, I, I want to use the old color palettes, yeah. the, the limited color palettes where it was just all flat and, you know, how it looked when it first debuted. Right. And she's, but she said, well, we don't have those files. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I took newspaper reference and created my color palette and just got to work on my, on in Photoshop using the black line and using the color reference there and recolored all of these Sundays starting in 1979 and it man it's a lot of work Um, (laughs) yeah but it's fun and the really neat part of that is i'm able to get in and like zoom in on her work and like actually see and study the way she draws people the way she she draws buildings or cars and Mm -hmm. and to see how her work has evolved through the years it's like i'm not just reading this i'm intricately involved in in seeing her line work and it was really really neat to see um we have done now four volumes are out and the fifth volume should be out in a couple of months this covers the first 15 years of her comic strip 
Wow. And we're, we're halfway through. The, the whole series is going to be nine volumes. We we cram – these are huge, huge volumes as well. We cram three and a half years about in each volume. And that's a lot of comics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the Sundays are in color. The dailies are in black and white. And the volume that we just – that I just finished that should be coming out in a couple of months has a very famous story involving Farley, the family dog. Oh, yeah. And so that story's there. And then there's another story where Michael's childhood friend, Lawrence, comes out of the closet. And that was in the previous volume, in volume four. So those are the kind of the two most notable stories that Lynn did through her, her, her 30 years on this strip. And so we've just got those in new editions that are collected uh, in their entirety for the for the first time, which is very, very cool. Yeah, and I do see that Amazon does have these as well. There's book one of five, at least of, yep. of a complete library, is available for $40 on hardcover. It is also available on Kindle and Comixology. That's right. If you want a digital version, a lot mm-hmm. easier to hold. <laughs> yeah. These are heavy books. <laughs> I'll bet. I mean, I've got a collection of the all the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe mini-comics that used to come with the figures. So that is a huge book. That, I can't yeah, even sit with it on my lap. That's right. That's You'll have the same experience yeah. with these ones Put it on the here. table and you read yep. it that way. <laughs> that's right. And it's just great. Her her writing is so funny. Her her drawings are so funny. and But she, it's actually really, really touching at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and she... The, the the unique thing about her comic strip is that her characters aged in real time. Yeah. So if you're reading these, these books are an interesting thing because you're reading it at an accelerated pace when you have three and a half years collected one book. So in 1991, uh, a third child was introduced to the strip. Ellie, the main character, became pregnant and had a, a daughter. And in that one book, she goes from non-existent to like uh, two and a half years old <laughs> in the same volume. Uh, and so it's cool to see the characters grow mm-hmm. uh, with the volume that I just released, volume five, Michael, who was six years old, I think, when the comic strip started. Or maybe he was five. No, yeah, I don't think he entered. He was in kindergarten quite yet. Um, he is now graduated and off to university. <laughs> And that is, and um, Elizabeth, who was a toddler when the comic strip started, is going to graduate in the volume that we just graduate from high school in the volume that we just put out. So, it's it's fascinating to me to watch these characters grow mm-hmm. and actually age, and you know develop their personalities and their interests and pursue their careers. And it's it's just what a great comic strip it is. Yeah. I love it. And I think they even started families of their own. I can. Uh... Because I remember reading like the last ones before she retired. Then all of a sudden, when they started going back to where they were kids, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm used to all these people being adults and having their <laughs> yeah. own their own families, and now they're kids again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Michael eventually does get married and have kids of his own, and yeah. the strip ends with um, Elizabeth's wedding. Yeah. So she 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 goes off and does her own thing there. It, it, it's just a fascinating, fascinating strip. Yeah, I think I came into it a little late. I, you know, I, I didn't read it when I was little. It didn't seem to have anything to appeal to me because everything was Peanuts and Garfield. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> you're little, you know, and then the Far Side. Everybody read the Far Side. Uh, <laughs> that and of course Calvin and Hobbes. We all loved that one. So like, for better or for worse, as I, uh, I guess, started getting a little older, I started actually reading that one. It's like, you know, this actually I understand this more because it, it is from that. From, you know, from Ellie's perspective, you do kind of get that adult perspective of family life. And as you get older, you start to understand some of the humor a little bit better than you would have when you were like <laughs> six years old. You read it, you don't quite get it. but Absolutely. No, you, you make a good point. It, it, a lot of it, I mean, it is funny. Like there is a gag in every strip. Mm-hmm. But you do have to know, I think, a lot about parenting in order to fully appreciate the humor because that's, it's all situational like that. Right. Um, it started off with her raising these two young kids. And as the, as when I started reading it, I was a teenager and the kids were teenagers. (laughs) And as the strip progressed and the teen and the kids became the teenagers, the focus of the strip shifted more from her parenting to the drama of teenage life. Yeah. And so I started that 
it, it interested to me. It, it was interesting to me because I was that age, and the soap opera drama aspect of it kept me coming back for more. And then now, as I'm reading it, I'm a parent myself. I'm rereading these strips as we're publishing them. I I understand it on a whole new level. I understand <laughs> the parenting aspect of it, and uh, and I'm loving seeing these kids experience. Um, being parents for themselves as well and you know all of this kind of stuff it, it just it goes yeah. in different circles and i'm sure that um when i am a grandparent i'll go back and reread these strips again because ellie becomes a grandparent right. as well and <laughs> lynn is the same age as ellie so she's writing her own experience her own life experience being a grandparent herself yeah. and so it's like it works on so many different tiers mm-hmm. It's sort of that, you know, some of the best comedy is when you write what you know. Yeah. <laughs> Comes it's from true. personal experience. True. Real life stories are always the best. And it's a and it's a subject matter that will always be relevant. Parenting <laughs> and you know, being parents, grandparents, being a teenager, like all of that stuff doesn't change through the years. Uh, you can like if you look at Family Circus, which started in nineteen fifty, mm, yeah. Like those jokes there's they're still the same you could tell the same jokes today and it's completely relevant this yeah. the clothes the style of of clothing or furniture or whatever changes but the actual situations are the same and like and if you compare that to something like Doonesbury, which is so <laughs> politically driven yeah and in the moment and of the era uh, reprints oops sorry that's my alarm uh, reprints of that comic strip i don't think will do as well Right. Because uh, because people would have to have a very good understanding of the political eras of like the the early eighties or whatever, yeah. <laughs> which I don't at all. Yeah. And you have to be in full agreement with the author to find what he's saying funny. <laughs> That's so, true as well. If you yeah. don't agree with his political ideas, you're gonna be like that. You know. Yep, that's very true. But I do find like in the I, – I haven't read it in a long time because, you know, now it's like newspapers are almost fading out and it's very kind of yeah. sad that you don't get those comic strips. But I kind of liked how the comic strip Baby Blues, I, I feel like it was like a, a follow-up to For Better or For Worse because they seem to got the, the same idea. I mean the style is very different. It was more comical. But like they started out with this one baby and then that, yep. that little girl started to grow up and then they said, oh, we need another baby because it's Baby Blues. So they had the little boy. And I think last <laughs> thing I saw, they were having a third baby because they wanted to keep a baby going. But they, they let the children kind of age throughout the strip. I'm like, this reminds me of For Better or For Worse, only only yep. but a bit more silly and less realism. <laughs> totally. And the, the aging happens. I think the main, the main girl, Zoe, mm-hmm. their oldest kid, she has gone from, you know, zero to – She's probably maybe five now or something like that, I think. But that's over like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's like, it's like they stalled out. <laughs> yeah. They grew uh, up for a while, then stalled. <laughs> those, those strips about parenting mm-hmm. are ones – or just like kid life and that kind of stuff. Those are the ones that will uh, always be popular in the newspapers and they will stand the test of time. That's why Peanuts is still popular. Right. And Calvin and Hobbes, you know, all of these strips – there's a theme to them and it's about, you know, real life. It's about growing up. Those were the ones. Uh, Zitz. That's another one that I love. Yeah, I like Zitz, <laughs> especially because the guy's name is Jeremy. So, you know. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, Hey, totally. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, some of the other ones, like I like Foxtrot, I think was always fun. Yep. Uh, yep which I think it. the author of Foxtrot, uh, I, I know I have seen him at a convention in Kansas City. I don't know if he lives here, but I know we do have like, uh, I think United King Feature Syndicate or whatever is actually here in Kansas City based. You're right. It is, yep. So I think that's how we got him here. I don't think he actually lives around here, but it's it's really, really just fun having these people come in and getting to hear how they come up with these things. And I hope we never lose the comic strip because everybody got to remember, as much as you love Stanley, don't forget, he actually did do a comic strip with, I think John Romita Jr. used to draw the Spider-Man strip. And Stanley yep. used to write the little strips, which I did find a collection of those ones, too, and read through. And it was always fun because, like, you got three panels to start. You know, you could barely get a story going, but <laughs> yeah. they were fond of getting Spider-Man in the worst things. Like in, in the normal comic book, he would, yeah, he could get, you know, defeated. Maybe, you know, he'd get in a bad situation. But in this one, three panels, all you have to do is like, we only have time to hit Spider-Man with one bad thing. And then that way you'll come back next <laughs> week because Spider-Man's been knocked delirious. Will he get killed? You know? 
Totally. It, it's a, such a different way of thinking when you're coming up, especially with the action adventure strips. Yeah. Uh, the, the publisher, Amer- uh, Library of American Comics, actually has collected Stan and Romita's uh, Spider-Man comic strip in the same style of these hardcover books. Nice. So there's five volumes of that that you can check. Uh, they're very, very cool. Um, that That's uh, Spider-Man stuff is very interesting because that that strip actually just ended uh not too long ago yeah. it was still running even without stan like they'd moved so his actually stan's brother larry larry lieber had had been writing or no, sorry had been drawing it and huh. he's like in his 80s and he was still doing it wow. for uh, a long time and uh, and just retired from it when just at just around the time that, that his brother passed away um very cool stuff. I, I love oh, the yeah. adventure strips too. Just it's just uh, um, really neat to see. To it, it's just nonstop action because mm-hmm. you have to have people coming back every single day. You can't <laughs> have these long extended periods where just people are talking. Stuff is always happening. Mm-hmm. Things are always being uncovered, or people are always being kidnapped or betrayed or whatever. And it's just so exciting. Yeah. So if you I haven't checked it. out. If you haven't checked out those old strips like Terry and the Pirates or um, or Dick Tracy, Dick Tracy, yes, I've actually been saying I got a collection of Dick Tracy that I found in a, in a uh, antique store. They had right. two books like compiled of Dick Tracy. One's like a certain set of years, and I got one that was just like a a best of. So yeah. and it actually started with the very first Dick Tracy, where he's not even a detective; he just kind of gets caught up in something, and they realize right. he's he's kind of brilliant. You should become a detective, okay? So suddenly he's a cop. I'm like, that was fast. Yes, he didn't right. have to go to police academy. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. I love it. Yeah, it's yeah. just such a great, great medium to tell stories. Oh yeah. So and then you know, relating, you're a comic to, fan. Yeah, relating to your the Disney side, because I'm sure that the people who are listening to this are uh, Disney fans. Um, mm-hmm. The Library of American Comics has also reprinted a bunch of the Silly Symphonies and Donald Duck comic strips. Nice! It's a comic strip called The Treasury of Classic Tales. Uh, they, they, yeah, we did a whole bunch of those strips. I wasn't personally involved with the production of those ones, but they're, they're there. And so, like, the classic work of um, Al Taliaferro doing Donald Duck in his daily and Sundays. Um, and then uh, the, the silly symphonies, which started with uh, the character Bucky bug. And he was a character that was created for the comic strip. And all of those comic strips are told in rhyme. If you can't get actual physical music out of a newspaper comic strip, right. but <laughs> they tried their best to make it kind of whimsy and musical. Huh. And, uh, and then that became silly symphonies became a showcase for a lot of their animated shorts. So they'd have adaptations of, comic strips of their of their cartoons like lambert the sheepish lion hey. or goliath 2 and you know and then they they did adaptations of some of their feature films like snow white and dumbo and that, all that kind of stuff and uh, all to coincide with the releases of these cartoons they were promotional tools but they it has some great artwork it's fun to read these stories and then it also morphed into a um, a Pluto comic strip for a while. It was Silly Symphony starring Pluto, hmm. and and then it became Silly Symphonies starring um, Jose uh, and Panchito from the Three oh, Caballeros. Yeah. And so there's uh, if you buy the fourth volume of that series, it's all Panchito and and um, and Jose Carioca. Oh, wow. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> Stuff I didn't know existed because I knew they had a Mickey Mouse strip and a Donald Duck strip. And then, of course, you had the Scrooge McDuck comics. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize there was a Silly Symphonies. And, oh, my goodness. They did a lot of stuff. The newspapers were huge sellers way back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Like, yeah. everybody read them. And it was back in the day when, you know, if something important happened in the morning – the newspapers would print it by the evening and yeah. get it out on the streets. Like the distribution was crazy. And so when you have that, um, you know, so many people working in that world and, um, and working with, with, with newspapers and, and, and such, like it's a good advertising medium as well. You're just yeah. pushing that content out. And so what Disney would do is, you know, their movies coming out, let's get a, a comic strip to, promote it. Mm-hmm. And so they did that on a very, very regular basis. 
uh, for very many years. Um, the Mickey Mouse cartoon strip is also reprinted, but it's not by our company. It's by a different company called Fantagraphics, but they've reprinted it. Uh, all of the Floyd Gottfriedson strips got reprinted. Uh, and then when he jumped off the book, that's when that series stops because I don't know, I guess it doesn't, it's not as good after that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read it personally, so yeah. I can't say. <laughs> well, so there's just so much good stuff out there that it keeps getting forgotten that I'm glad, you know, I'm glad people like you're taking the time for finding this Chuck Jones strip and getting it out there. I, I appreciate yes. that people get it out there that way. You get an, a chance to check this stuff out and read some of the old stuff and, you know, see, See the love and care that people handled with these characters, uh, even back in the day, that were really, you know, because if you look at all the people who either draw comics or comic strips and everything, you know they had a love for it when they were younger. I mean, you can go back to generations. Everybody gets inspired by these older generations. Yep. And so to see where everything just kind of came from, and, and it even talk about how, how Disney could use stuff to promote. I mean, I think one of the fun, rare things to find out was that Walt Disney actually had, uh, for a brief time, I don't know how long this ran, but he had a radio program where he had the voices of his characters on with him. And cool. they would have like little little mini adventures with Donald Duck, and then they would have oh we would we've got Snow White coming out, and so suddenly Snow White would be actually on the show in the radio drama. Uh, so they would actually do weird ways to promote stuff by just having these little special programs. He'd come out and have Donald Duck come out, and they were promoting that a new Silly Symphony was going to be out in theaters, and just all this stuff. <laughs> it's, and it's really hard to track this stuff down, but it's really fun stuff. What I would like to do, uh, a dream project of mine, and I don't think that this has been done yet. This is one of these like little tiny corners of uh, Disney history that I was talking about earlier. I would because Disney did a lot of cartooning of his mm -hmm. own before he, you know, moved in onto the more business side of things, and so all of those early. I, I was at the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. I want to go um, there. It's very, very cool. And they have uh, one little section of it devoted to Walt's comic strip work. And just they have some examples of some of the cartoons that he did. And, I, man, that would be such an excellent book to reprint yes. as much of that as, as we could. But uh, that would mean going through Disney and going through the Disney lawyers and right. the Disney machine and like that, you know, licensing each one of those, those uh, comic strips for publication. It gets pricey. So I don't know that that'll actually happen. <laughs> this is where I say, hey, Jim Corcus, if you happen to be listening, that's an assignment for you. <laughs> Jim <laughs> yeah. Corcus could totally get after that. He's got enough clout with the Disney archives. I bet they'd let him in, go in and search and find it. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Jim would be a great person to do that. Oh, yes. And uh, I still, I'm trying to contact him. He was trying to get another book out here this October. I don't know if he got a chance to get it out because COVID kind of got in his way. But Yeah, right. Yeah. He's the, the guy I know of yeah. to go and dig in. Totally. So, oh, is that the, the Halloween one that he was talking about? Uh, it might be. Uh, I remember send, he sent an email. I said, well, yeah, because I, I asked him how he was doing. Uh, and he said he did have something he was hoping to get out in October. And I did send him one. It's like, oh, did you get a chance to put it out? And I haven't heard back. Huh. So I hope he's okay. I haven't heard from him in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he still has a regular a regular column over on Cartoon Research's website. Yeah. So I think he's still around. But Good. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm starting to worry there for a second. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if he can do it, then more power. Somebody's got to do it. I would. Somebody needs to. Yeah. to I mean, I'd love to do it myself, but as long as somebody does it, then that's fine. fine I think me. for a while they had some of it. They get to borrow a lot of things up in Marceline for the hometown museum. Right. Uh, I think they actually had some of his comics there, but uh, like it was there the first time I was in the museum, but then it wasn't there the second time. So I think they had to they borrowed it and had to return a lot of things. Right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff they still have uh, stored because uh, his sister Ruth actually, basically all of her stuff they they were, were it was just given to the museum in Marceline, so they still have stuff they haven't unpacked yet. Oh wow! So if you if you ever get a chance to come to Marceline, yeah. you got to check out that museum. It is fantastic. So that would be so good. Yeah, this is the first time in several years I didn't get to go because Toon Fest, which is an annual event, was canceled this year. So I'm like, no. Right. So. 2021 is going to be better. We're going to get to go and do all these things and catch up on stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if no you kidding. can ever so, come down Missouri, let me know. I was at, I took the family to Disney World back in February. 
um, just before, like we got home and then we got news of all of this COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they announced that they were going to shut down the park. I'm like, wow, we got in there kind of just in time. Yeah. <laughs> just before you, you could have gotten locked in the park. That'd have been fun. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Oh, We're boy. trapped in the park. It sounds like a horror movie. Trapped in the Walt Disney World. Ha ha. Oh, okay. That'd be fantastic. I'd yeah. watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody, is that what they call where somebody actually did a guerrilla filmmaking and filmed in Walt Disney World, tried to film a horror movie in there and had some trouble because they weren't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> So, oh, yes. Um, I want to do briefly just hop a quick quarter to let everybody know you, um, and I've listened to a couple episodes of this. You have the Epic Marvel podcast. Ah, yeah. Where you're covering, uh, and I didn't know that this was happening, where they're reprinting certain sections, because I've got some of the Marvel Masterworks, mainly of Spider-Man, because I'm a Spider-Man. I'm the Spider-Pan. Of course, I got Spider-Man stuff. (laughs) Uh, But they started doing these epic collections where they're not necessarily going in order. They're just grabbing major storylines and reprinting those which I didn't know this was happening. So I started listening back on your show like, oh, look, you, there's just some Spider-Man ones here. Oh, look, the Iron Man, Demon in a Bottle. I remember reading that. And so that's been yeah, fun to check out. It's very cool. That's definitely a, another side project of mine. It's that's something I do for fun, uh, like all of us podcasters just right. kind of do it for fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just love talking about comics with people and uh, just and not just like talking about oh man did you read that whatever whatever issue but actually like digging in to talk about like the motivations behind the characters or like the interesting art techniques that this got that the, the artists use to tell their stories and you know how this little incident affects things down the road several mm-hmm. years from now you know all this kind of stuff um just digging deep into it and the the reason i started the podcast was two reasons i've been buying these epic collections and uh, I needed motivation to read them, <laughs> like uh, like actually read them on a regular basis. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I'll start a podcast and use the epic collections as a guide for my episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, because one one of those books collects about twenty issues, and so I can make one episode of, out of it, or one or two episodes out of it, yeah. depending on how much I'm able to read, and then get a co-host who will come on and discuss those those particular issues. And so that uh, served the purpose of getting me to actually read these books and not just have them sitting on my shelf. And then also, <laughs> like all of us collectors have that problem, right? We yeah. have all this stuff and it just kind of sits on our shelves. And then the other thing is I now have people that I can talk to about it. My wife doesn't provide the level of uh, comic conversation that I really want. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to go elsewhere for that. And the, the podcast is great. So if you go over to Marvel, uh, epicmarvelpodcast.com and, um, or find me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you can get ac- access to all of these episodes. And um, for those of you who don't know, the Epic Collections, they aim to collect all of Marvel's long-running titles rather than just collecting like a certain important story in a, in a book or collecting certain stories by an artist in a book. They want to do everything from start to finish. So starting from Amazing Fantasy number 15 for Spider-Man, going to Amazing Spider-Man number one, going all the way to number 400 and something or other is I think where they're planning on stopping because they Spider-Man had a kind of a reboot at that point in the comics. It's <laughs> happened a few times. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, but they want to collect all of that. And so to fit 450 issues or whatever it is into 26 or 27 volumes, they're, they're putting them all together. And like you said, they're not releasing them in order because uh, they want people to be able to sample the different eras of Spider-Man. So they'll do you know a volume from the 1960s, and then they'll release a volume from the 1980s, and then they'll release a volume from the 1990s, and, and then kind of mix it up so that you're you know, if you're a Spider-Man fan, but you don't necessarily like the way the comics were written in the 60s, that's okay. You can still buy the ones from the 80s or the 90s or whatever your favorite part of Spider-Man is. And so my episode is like, I'll pick a volume. My episodes also don't go in order. Uh, so I'll pick, you know, volume 18. We'll read that one and we'll talk about it. Then I'll do volume one and talk about that one or then jump over to volume 22 and talk about that one. And it's not just Spider-Man. It's Iron Man. It's Captain America. It's Wolverine. It's the X-Men. It's Avengers. It's Hulk. It's I, I love 
the the characters that Marvel created. So the whole podcast the whole podcast is built around talking about uh, those classic characters in their the eras that made them popular. Yep, and I I would recommend I think with listening to them. I'm listening in the car. I think I'd probably get more out of it if I was sitting there with the book, because you guys reference. Oh, over! Did you see the art there on frame five of page fifty? Yeah. <laughs> you guys and are really particular. I'm like, <laughs> absolutely. That is the level of detail that we go yeah. into. It's like we'll reference the page numbers uh, in the collections so that people can reference it and see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, I love giving those very specific examples. A lot of people say to me, uh, "What I really like doing is I'll read a, I'll read one issue of the book." And then I'll listen to that part of the podcast and then I'll read another (laughs) issue and then I'll listen to a little bit more of the podcast. It's basically like an audio commentary. Yeah. Watch for a movie, except it's for a book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely recommend it. Buy the epic comics and then listen to the podcast that coincides (laughs) with that comic. You know, because you're you're talking about something I'm like, and I'm sitting there listening like, man, I wish I could see what they're talking about because this sounds cool, but I'm driving the car. (laughs) Yeah, it's. It's not a general conversation where we just generally talk about it. It's so specific that, mm-hmm. you know, if you haven't read those issues, you probably you're not going to get as much out of the episode or listening to our podcast as you want to. So this really is for people who want to uh, go deep into these stories yeah. uh, more than just surface level, for sure. Yeah. And it definitely does encourage me to go and I'm. I wish I had the money to go get them all, but I'm going to have to track down at least the Spider-Man because I'm a big Spider-Man junkie. And yeah. uh, I think the first one, I, I jumped back in time to, uh, uh, I think the first one I listened to with Spider-Man was the Cosmic Spider-Man. And I'm familiar with it, but I've yeah. never actually read those comics. So I'm <laughs> yeah. like, you're going through it and you're, you're not telling the story, so you're not spoiling anything. Right. But I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. I was like, man, I got to go get this. I'm going to go read this now. So it does generate yeah, the excitement. It's very, very cool. And that's mm-hmm. that's volume in particular is where i started reading spider-man so that was a uh, near and dear to me because that's oh, yes. uh, those are the issues that i remember from my childhood for sure oh yes and especially me growing up with spider-man and his amazing friends that's what started oh, yeah. it for me totally. but the obsession didn't start till my teenage years when they first reprinted amazing fantasy 15 and as much as people find it cheesy it gets repeated so many times that spoke to me and that's made me a big spider-man fan is the great power and great responsibility yeah that's where uh, that's where i became spider-man obsessed because before that, you know, I grew up when you're a little kid, I had the Christopher Reeve Superman. And so everybody loves Superman. But I always loved Spider-Man and that's with his amazing friends. I loved that cartoon. And then <laughs> and I went through my X-Men phase, too, because I do still love the X-Men. But Spidey's still number one. Oh, I agree. Spidey's number one. I'm And oh, yeah. I, I love the fact that we can now watch those old Spider-Man cartoons on Disney Plus as well. Yes. It's like, yes, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Woohoo! And you better believe I'm watching them. <laughs> I watch them again and again. Sometimes if I'm just like, you know, I need something to watch to go to sleep. I want to take a nap. I'll just turn them on and just, ah. Yeah. <laughs> bring on the Spidey. <laughs> but anyways, uh, well, let's just throw everything around now. So I've been speaking here with, this has been Curtis Findlay. Uh, yeah. If you search his name on Amazon, I think you can find a lot of the books. Because I did, when I clicked on your name, I did find the Chuck Jones, The Dream That Never Was. And also, For Better, For Worse, The Complete Library, Volume 1. Both of those are available on Amazon. And, uh, of course, if you keep an eye, I think you can follow people on Amazon now. Uh, so when the next volumes are available on Amazon, you should be able to get them. Because Volume 1 was back in 2017. So how many volumes have you got out of For Better, For Worse? Um, volume 5 should be coming out soon. They're all on Amazon. Uh, maybe my name is just not tagged with them or something. But uh, they are all there. So you will be able to find them all. Okay, well, I just clicked in Kindle Edition. There we go. Yeah, it yeah. does have uh, the whole collection is sitting here. Yep. Right here on Amazon. So, yeah, everybody, make sure you check this out. If if, if you love comic strips, you're going to love this. If you don't love, ooh, excuse me. If you don't love comic strips, you will gain a lot of comic strips by looking at this. And definitely that publisher with all the stuff they're doing, man, definitely go. Uh, what is What was that called again? Illustrated? Something. The Library of American Comics. I am Library typing that. Uh, I'm typing that in. Yep. Library right of American Comics.com will take you to uh, you'll find the complete catalog they've got over 200 books of classic comic strips uh, comic strip collections um you know everything from flash gordon to bloom county to obscure stuff that you may not have heard of like polly and her pals and and uh, tippy and you know this just a wonder, wonderful wonderful stuff yeah and there's even some i remember jim corcus had mentioned a comic strip that we hadn't known about and i can't think of what it was there was some old comic strip that he was, uh, 
I think it, I don't know if he was doing it as part of his research and found a thing, but there's, I mean, there's so much stuff that gets forgotten that is, it shouldn't be forgotten because it's just that good. Yep. And it looks like they've also published through IDW Publishing, so you should be able That's to find right. this in a lot of comic stores. That's right. Well. The, the parent company is IDW Publishing, and uh, they are the ones who distribute the books all over the place. So you can find them in comic shops. You can find these books in you know Barnes and Noble or whatever, all of that stuff. If if the actual physical book is not there, they can easily order stuff uh, from the distributor. And I just liked the official page here because I am going to be looking at some of this because I do I do love old comic strips. I've gotten to read some some old Flash Gordon reprints. Yeah, uh, even the uh, the library had like a, like several books collecting the the first few years of Peanuts. Loved reading them. This it's it's just a very different feeling you get from reading them compared to some of the newer stuff. Oh, for sure. But anyways, anyways, thanks for coming on the show. This has been fun. And when we have a big Marvel discussion, we're going to have to have you on sometime. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm always game. Thanks, Jeremy, for, uh, for inviting me here. I've, I had a blast. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official lost boy or pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash NeverlandPodcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, 